Well, this passage uh, that we come to this morning, you would have heard some pretty familiar phrases in there. There's, there's some of these phrases that have het- etched themselves uh, into human history, into the history of literature, ever since Jesus first uttered these, 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 these sayings, these phrases. Uh, some of them have now become uh, colloquial sort of phrases throughout history. Thomas Hobbes, he's an English philosopher from, I think, the 17th century, 1600 and something or other, used this, one of these phrases in his book, The Leviathan, and he's commenting, he's saying, humanity is always at war with itself, always divided with itself, and what it needs is a strong, unified government to hold it together. Claiming the only way to stop the natural wars within, in humanity is strong, undivided government. And then about 200 years after him, along comes Abraham Lincoln. And he used this imagery of a house divided against itself in his speech to the nation to address the perils of a country torn apart uh, over the argument of slavery. And then since then, countless coaches, countless politicians, businesses, even family meetings have all used the image that Jesus coined here 2,000 years ago of how can a house divided stand to, to try and encourage unity, to try and help conflicting viewpoints come together for the well-being of that group, for that country, for whatever it is. Interestingly, though, Jesus never used this as an image Uh, as an inspirational rally point to try and join together conflicted uh, views, conflicting ideas. Jesus was not in any way trying to mend the increasing divide that was um, occurring between him and established religion. If anything, what Jesus has to say here in this little passage is going to cement that, maybe even further widen that. Jesus used this image of a house divided as a logical rebuttal to claim that he, that to, as a logical rebuttal to the claim that he was working in partnership with Satan, with, with demonic forces himself, that he was not who he claimed to be, but rather someone sinister, someone deceitful, someone socially dangerous. The claim was that the body of work that he has together, all the way since we started in Luke 4, maybe 10 years ago in Luke's gospel, uh, all of that body of work to overthrow evil in the world, to reverse the effects of sin in the world, the chaos on people, was not evidence of of Jesus uh, working for God as someone who has been sent into the world by God, but it's actually Satan trying to deceive us. He's not the Messiah, is the claim. In fact, he's an antichrist. That's the claim. That's the misdirect of the Pharisees. Uh, Matthew's gospel names that the people who make in this allegation of the Pharisees. Mark says, the scribes. The point of this rebuttal, Jesus is saying, while there are many ideas about who he is and what he is doing, there's only actually one right acknowledgement of him. And that right acknowledgement of him will indeed lead to life in the kingdom of God. Furthermore, Jesus is going to go on to say, there's no middle ground when it comes to who Jesus is. You either acknowledge him as the bringer of God's rule and restoration and grace to your soul, or as Matthew expands, because Luke's pretty brief, you don't, but to deny this uh, is to deny the work of the Holy Spirit, which has immediate and ongoing consequences. 
who Jesus is is at the center of this passage, not so much the miracle of healing, uh, of the removal of a speech-suppressing demon. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, speaks about what is known as the trilemma around Jesus. Jesus is a historical reality. He is a historical fact. But what kind of fact is Jesus? Is Jesus a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg? Which, you know, by the way, is no longer lunacy. You can identify as a poached egg if you want. It's all fine. Or is he a liar? Indeed, on the level of the devil of hell himself. Or is he Lord? And if he's Lord, all of his claims, all of his miracles need not merely be believed, but must be applied and trusted and into our lives for the fullness of life. Luke begins this encounter in a very matter-of-fact way. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. There's no coloring in. There's no, there's no um, you know, adding to the story around this. It's very matter-of-fact. In fact, it's possibly the shortest description of a miracle in the Gospels, just summed up in one short verse. So well established in Luke's gospel is the fact of Jesus' miracles that Luke doesn't see any need to explain it here, perhaps. It's just redundant, the explaining of it. But also because uh, Jesus is just literally months or not that, maybe a month long, far away from the cross, for Luke, the more critical question is not the miracle, but who is the one, the identity of the one performing the miracle. That's the question that dominates this moment. That's the question uh, that is being asked in the people. Not uh, has he performed a miracle, but, but how and why. No one questions if Jesus can perform miracles. No one questions that he's cast out a demon that's made this person mute for so long. But the reaction is that some are marvel, like, wow, how cool. A somewhat more impressive displays. And some just want to kind of throw shade and disrepute on Jesus and who he is and his motives. Well, Jesus will address the fence sitters and possibly the marvelous later in this verse and with more detail later on in verses 29 and 32 when we get there, where he says, I am all the sign that you need to be given to properly acknowledge and apply my claims and who I am to your life. You don't need any more bells and whistles. You just need to look at the evidence of who I am and what I say. But right now, he goes after anyone who would seek to discredit Jesus as evil and not acknowledge him as the one in whom the kingdom of God and all its blessings are being brought into the lives of people. He's going after the heart that just literally refuses to perceive the evidence before them and look for some other crazy way to explain it away. Aligning Jesus with Beelzebub or Beelzebub, depending on uh, which version you've got, is about as uh, a dirty and uh, disrespectful slight on Jesus as it gets. Beelzebub was a high uh, pagan deity. You can read about uh, this in um, 2 Kings, uh, God of Ekron, 2 Kings 1-2. 
whose name, due to sounding familiar to a Hebrew expression, Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung, became a way of the Jews attributing a lack of respect, a disdain, if you like, uh, to, towards powerful uh, pagan deities, uh, figures that were attributed supernatural power that weren't God. They would, they would make a slight twist on the name and it became a slur, an insult. In, in time, the Jews came to identify the arch demons of hell, Satan himself, with this less than flattering twist on the name, twist on the word, Beelzebub, to, I think it goes to Beelzebub or something like that, to attribute Jesus' ability to cast out demons as coming from his alliance with such a, a dark prince, was to say he was a tool of the devil, a worker of dung in people's lives, and not the son of God. And it was done in the most polarizing way you could imagine. But they needed to come up with an explanation for why Jesus was doing what he was doing. And this was the best they could reach to. Maybe the thinking goes like this. The dark prince this, 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 you know, of this world is prepared to lose this one's soul here. You know, demon gone, tongue loosed, back into the kingdom of God, if it means that everybody else will be impressed, marvel and follow this false messiah, this Jesus, this dung spreader, this lackey of the devil. That's the logic. That's the argument that they could possibly mount. However, Jesus blows up the logic as absurd, given that this isn't a one-off event. The goal of Satan has been to destroy people and creation as God made it, as God designed it. And Jesus' whole ministry has been one of restoration and healing on, and, and ongoing miracles. How on earth is this a good plan? Is this a good idea? Why would Satan send someone whose whole entire body of work has been to undo and restore all that Satan has bound up and enslaved? Why would he send someone to bring peace and order to the corruption and the chaos that he's all about. It's a straw man argument. It's a misdirect, a rather insulting one, but I think that's their point. They want to discredit Jesus. So associating him with evil is an expedient kind of cheap seats way of achieving this. Because like, you know, if you throw mud, if you make a, an assertion about someone, no matter how untrue it is, some of it sticks. It's not unusual in order to deny who Jesus is. It means that you must also deny common sense and logical reasoning from the evidence. You will always find yourself depending on some kind of inconsistency when it comes to denying uh, who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, Lord, the Son of God, if you want to engage with the evidence. These days, a lot of people want to discredit Christianity by associating with all kinds of evil, and some of it has merit, sadly. But Christianity does not stand on the imperfect lives of its community, nor does it fall by the atrocities committed under the misrepresentation of its purpose. Christianity stands on the claims of Jesus, who he said he was, who he claims to be what he has done, and what he is continuing to do. Well, after blowing up the logic that Jesus advances the work of Satan by tearing it, you know, tearing it down miracle by miracle and healing by healing, well, that's illogical, Jesus points out that he's not 
the only one. It's not just him who has this miraculous works attributed to him. Their sons do as well. What do you make of their activities? Are we all in league with this dark prince? Or is it evidence that God has not left him unopposed? This could be Jesus catching them out in a contradiction, that they are perfectly happy to take the acclaim, take the reputation, the, re- you know, the, the honor-building reputation when some of their own sons are accredited with miraculous works, but no such favor is extended to Jesus. Or maybe Jesus is referring to the fact that his disciples, the apostles, who they themselves are Jews, are sons of Abraham, will also do likewise in his name, in his ongoing ministry that will stand in judgment over them, even after he is gone, if they don't change their position towards him if they don't change their attitude towards him like they might get rid of jesus in his physical absence gone return to the father the evidence of who he is and the power of his name to bring the kingdom of god to play in people's lives is going to be evidenced in his apostles it's going to bear witness stand against their false claims of who he is i think it's more than likely that that's what jesus is railing at but even in that As Jesus makes that statement, he's saying to the Pharisees, this is an invitation. It's a warning, but it's an invitation. You know, there's still time to change your minds about who I am. The satanic alliance done away with as an absurdity, the fact that Satan is not unopposed in his chaos in the world. Jesus now moves on to the issue. Uh, He now moves on to issue a statement of who he is. And what that means. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Using language that ties back to another great uh, movement, another great moment of divine activity and deliverance and and the grace of God in human history. Back in in Exodus 8.19, you know, where the the magicians say to the Pharaoh, we're up against it here. This is actually the finger of God. At work, something powerfully supernatural at play here. Jesus now claims that God is once again directly involved in human history, only this time it's happening in the person of Jesus. This is the greater Moses. Only on this occasion, it involves no less than the arrival of the kingdom of God into the lives of people who were once living under the rule and the reign and the chaos of the, of the dark prince, of the, of the strong man, of the ruler that's pictured here, they now are being liberated by the finger of God, liberated and restored. Jesus is saying by his miracles that they are audiovisuals of the presence of God's victorious rule and reign in the lives of people. They indicate that the great... Uh, promised Messiah has come and with him incredibly outstandingly the effects of the kingdom of God into their lives through him the work of the Holy Spirit which is another known alias for the finger of God I think Matthew actually says you know it's the work of the Holy Spirit through that to regenerate life where sin has brought death that's what's going on here to transform lives uh, into order 
where, where, where Satan has held them in chaos and, and, and disorder to heal and to bind up the broken threads of people. That was back in Luke 4 where Jesus said, this is what I'm going to be about. Come to bring lives into peace and certainty. Jesus' work in the lives of people is as though it is etched in there, uh, you know, by the finger of God, the power of the Holy Spirit effortlessly establishing his authority over Satan, just like, you're done, brother, get out. Freedom from the work of sin and evil found in Jesus. And all that remains is for people to actually just acknowledge what they're seeing, actually just acknowledge the evidence, respond to the truth of the one who does this. This reality is drawn up by Jesus in another story that serves a picture of the application of the point of this parable. In verses 21 to 22, Jesus tells the audience, and you and I, who he really is. Far from a delusional liar, a madman of hell in league with the devil, or, uh, but on the other side things, just a, a good teacher, a moral reformer, someone to marvel at, Jesus is the stronger liberator, the savior of the soul. In this illustration of who he is, Jesus takes all the other claims, all the other accusations, all the other ideas off the table, and he says there's only one accurate one, there's only one true one, and that is that I am the savior, the liberator of the world, indeed of the human soul. Think about the world. And all that is wrong. Like it doesn't, you, don't have, you don't have to be Einstein to look at the world and go, there's something wrong. There's just something that just cannot be mended. There's something wrong. The chaos, the famine, the poverty, the abuse of power, the oppression of the weak, dysfunctional families, addictions that enslave, even spiritual forces and powers that distort and corrupt the enjoyment of God's design in people's lives, who, who even take the capacity to speak away from someone so they can give praise to God and communicate with their neighbors. Every good thing just corrupted, every intent of creation ruined by the work of this strong man, this warlord, this dark prince, Satan, and up until now, has operated as if the world and all its people are just his and things to destroy and there's no hope against it. You know, nothing can change it. Think about it. No social reform in history to this point of Jesus' life. No religious duty, no military might, no government. Nothing has ever reversed or stopped the work of the strong man in the human heart of people. So it just goes on and on and on. We know it now slaves to this bondage why why do i speak so cruelly to my wife why do i kick the next door neighbor's cat why do i do these things there's something in us that no 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 government no um external power can fix can solve can heal can transform jesus is saying that all ends with him but now that i am here one who is stronger stronger than any forces or any evil, stronger than this dark prince and his grip on the world and his grip on the human heart, his power to corrupt what God made good, that all ends with me. I am not in league with evil. I am destroying it. 
person by person, soul by soul, miracle by miracle, healing by healing. I am transforming and renewing the lives of people with my life, with the work of the Spirit. This is how the kingdom of God takes hold through my work in the world and the lives of people on your soul. Tim Keller sets it up. Jesus is saying, this is Tim Keller as he, he was preaching out of Mark in Mark 3. He says, Jesus is essentially saying, I am the divine warrior of prophecy, of biblical hope. I am the restorer that the world has longed for since paradise lost, since the world began to break apart, and since the deception of the dark prince took hold of humanity's heart and began to enslave them to fear and anger and violence and alienation and mistrust with God and with each other. It's very dramatic. It's Genesis 3. And at that moment in Genesis 3, in Genesis 3.15, God speaks to this strong man, this destroyer, this warlord, this squatter who has taken up residence and vandalized the home that God has made for humanity. And he says, a mightier one than you will come and he will crush your head. You have triumphed for a moment, but a mightier one will come and restore all that you have destroyed and will liberate all that you have taken captive and renew all of creation that you have spoiled that's the biblical promise that's the biblical hope that grows throughout the whole bible it's the movement of the new testament old testament moving forward to the new testament and as it does the picture becomes clearer and clearer as we move through psalms and and the prophets it becomes clearer and clearer that this divine warrior this stronger one to come will be the lord himself god And Jesus has the audacity to say that I am that promised hope. I am the stronger one, the mightier one. I am God come to free you and heal you and bring you into life again. Stronger than any dark force. Anything that seeks to keep people from the life that God has for them. Jesus is stronger. And I've come to rescue people from the strong man. It's quite, a, it's quite a claim. It's an extraordinary moment. And it's the last nail in the coffin about the many different ideas that you think you can hold about Jesus if you listen to the evidence of his life, the claims he makes. And Jesus is finishing by saying as much. You see, you either see me for who I am or you reject my claims. There's no middle ground, but you must look at the evidence. And from the evidence, you must make up your mind. You and your life will either tell a story about me or it'll tell another story of your own. Your life will either tell a story of being gathered out of chaos and into the kingdom of God or it will continue to tell a story of being, of being scattered and in chaos. It's just my little... Um, play on the last line of, of this little passage. Before Jesus can be anything in your life, you have to acknowledge that he is who he claims to be, that he is the savior of the world, the savior of your soul. And what you're going to be warring against, what you're going to be at war against, is a heart of pride that will constantly seek to try and find the craziest of reasons. Why that just can't be. The most illogical reasons of why that can't be. 
But only Jesus can break the power of sin. Only Jesus can restore the soul of a person and bring it to newness of life. No other reform is strong enough. No political might, you know, Thomas Hobbes ideology. No behavior modification of Abraham Lincoln. No motivational speech of any coach is enough. Only Jesus leads to the lasting change and liberation and peace of the soul. You have to investigate the claims of Jesus. You have to go to the source. You can't go to secondary sources of what other people say Jesus said. Don't even trust me. Go to the source. Go and hear, go and listen, go and see what Jesus said. Let's pray. I mean, God, we thank you that our experience uh, of this world of life is not all there is. The sneaking suspicion that there's more, there's something wrong, but there's more, comes to life in the person and the claims of Jesus. That we can have something very real, very concrete that comes into our lives and helps us deal with the chaos and the mess. That loosens our tongues, as it were, to give praise back to you, rather than to be dead, mute, that say nothing of our good God. This morning, as we think about uh, the stronger one, the mightier warrior who would come into our lives to bring healing, to bring peace, to reconcile us back to God, our prayer is that we would be led to your son, Jesus, that we would meet him at the cross where he has dealt ultimately with all of the uh, sin that ties us up, that he has dealt with that, that that no longer binds us, and that we would be uh, liberated back into fullness of life. This is our prayer this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.